Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Pixis. Located in Lafayette, Colorado, they are the PTSA experts since 2012. Pixis offers solutions for conveniently measuring PTSA turbidity, pH, conductivity, corrosion, and ultrasonic and pressure-based liquid level sensing. As a water treatment professional, you need to know what's in your system and you need to be confident that what you are using to test gives you solid results. Pixis offers second to none metering technology that compensates for color and turbidity, giving you peace of mind that your result is accurate and dependable every time you run a test. Visit them online by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Pixis, that's P-Y-X-I-S, to see their full line of water treatment products. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of the most awesome water treatment podcast out there, Scaling Up H2O. Folks, we are right in the middle of the interview where Connor Parrish interviews me and asks the questions that many of you have asked of me, and now you're learning those answers through Connor's interview. Before we get back to the interview, we have another James's challenge. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional drop by drop is... Measure the pH of your DPD free chlorine test after reagent addition. Today's challenge is about understanding interferences in your tests. Amongst other things, the DPD free chlorine test requires a specific pH range to give reliable results. According to the test procedure, the pH should be between 6 and 7. If you have a highly alkaline sample, perhaps over 250 ppm as calcium carbonate, the reagents may not be able to adjust the pH enough for the test. Highly acidic samples may similarly be a problem. If this is the case for you, refer to the test procedure on how to properly adjust the pH. While you're reading the procedure, take a look at other possible interferences as well. You never know what useful information you may learn. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. Well, James, thank you for another installment, another challenge for us to become just a little bit better each and every week. And folks, I've received a few questions on James's challenge of last week, where he was talking about determining the volume of cooling and closed loop systems. So, I did a show on that back on episode 116, where somebody called in and asked how to do that. So if you haven't listened to that in a while, by all means, go back and listen to 116. And then if you're having any issues completing last week's James's Challenge, you should be able 
to continue on. So I hope you enjoy playing with the chlorine test that James talked about this week. And I'm really enjoying getting back to the interview. But I want to remind everybody that we're now starting to see more and more conferences come back into a live event planning. So one of the ones that is coming up is the International Water Conference. That's always a popular one amongst industrial water treaters. And they are calling for abstracts right now. So if you want to present at the International Water Conference, now is the time to start putting that together and presenting your abstract to them. Maybe you'll get picked and maybe you will be at the show. If you want more details on that, you can go to our show notes page at scalinguph2o.com. Now we're returning to last week's interview. So here's the continuation of Connor Parrish's interview with me. I am curious because I've been exploring this a little bit myself recently and making some changes to it. What what does the morning routine of Trace Blackmore look like? I wish it was getting up and working out. It used to be getting up uh, about 4.30 and going to the pool and swimming. And I haven't done that in a while. And I, I need to be held accountable. I need to be fussed at. I need to get back in the pool. It's been a while since I've been in the pool. And I had a car accident last summer. So it's been a while since I've worked out as well. So I need to add that. So thanks for airing that laundry out on the on the Scaling Up Nation. Of course. But no, Scaling Up Nation, hold me accountable to that. So I can be around as long as possible to bring this podcast to you. All right, everyone, you heard it here. We've got to ask him every time we see him now, how's the swimming coming along? Oh, my goodness. I just did that to myself. Well, And that, that's, a, that's a great thing to make sure that we're getting the things done is we have other people help us out with that. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had 12,000 people help me out with that, but maybe that's what I need. So that, that's what, in my ideal day, that's what I would do. I do the things that get interfered with doing later in the day, early in the day. So I can't go in the pool in the afternoon because somebody's going to call. Somebody's going to need something. I'm going to be pulled in another direction, and I know I'm not successful when I work out later than early, early morning. When the only thing that's going on is working out, I will get it done. That means you got to get out of bed early. That means you got to get out in the cold. You have to go to the pool, all that stuff. But then I get to check that off. Then I go to the office and I do the daily planning that I mentioned earlier. Then I just start working through my day. And uh, as I mentioned before, I theme my days. So I might be working on podcasts on one days, or I might be working on Tuesdays is when the mastermind group meets. So Tuesdays are all about the rising tide mastermind. And and that's where my mindset is. and, And that's where I'm working. I just simply go through my day. And I make sure that if I don't do what I planned, I said yes to something bigger than what was on my plan, but I still need to get done what was on my plan. So I then either delegate that to somebody or I will forward that over to the next day. And then when the day is done, I actually grade myself on how well I did. Just like I evaluate the entire week, I look at the day at the very end, and I'll close things out. So maybe I said yes that you and I were going to do something and I did not do something that I planned on doing. Well, now I'm going to move that over to Wednesday. Or maybe because I know my calendar, an even better day to do it is Friday. So because I did that weekly planning, I can move it to Friday and it's got a better chance of getting done. 
And then uh, I just wash, rinse, repeat, and do it all over again. I don't have, if you look at my calendar, you think, oh my gosh, Trace doesn't have a lot of free time. And that's not really true. I've just decided where I want to take it. And I want to admit, I'll watch things on Netflix. I'll watch television shows. I'll listen to podcasts. But normally that's around time when it's okay to do that. And I'm not saying no to something else because I want to watch Entourage on HBO Max or something like that. So that's pretty much how my my day-to-day goes. And some days are better than others. I'll just end with that. Well, I think that's the case for all of us. And like I said, mine's a a massive work in progress right now. And I vacillate between should I work out in the morning? Should I work out later? And I guess the jury's still out on that one. But I guess what I'm finding to kind of echo what you said is there's certain things like exercise that it's very easy to say, no, I need to keep working. I need to keep doing this. So if you don't do it first thing in the morning, what I'm finding is a lot of times it doesn't happen. So I guess I'm drifting back towards that morning workout myself and scaling up nation can probably look to hold me accountable for that as well. I did want to maybe shift gears a little bit here and see what your thoughts were around the future of the water treatment industry. It's something I think about a lot. Obviously we see every day how much the world around us is changing. There's a lot of things going on really across all different aspects of life. So with that being said, one, how has the water treatment industry changed since you started? I think looking retrospectively to see, okay, here's where it was, here's where I thought it was going to be, and actually here's where we are is an important step in this process. But then if you were to extend that out 10 years into the future, I think the analogy you like to use with us is you get in your DeLorean and go back to, in this case, let's say, 2030, like the Back to the Future movies, what do you think you're going to see? You know, I remember when I I really started in the water treatment industry in the early 90s, although I was doing little tasks for my dad. But through that point, when I was doing the little tasks for my dad, when I was a, a small guy and, and then through high school, and then when he actually started paying me uh, in the early 90s, I remember that there were dedicated people at all the accounts. There was always somebody there that was waiting for you, and their job was water treatment. Now, it might not be their only job. Now, some people, they had teams of people that all they did was deal with the boiler and the cooling tower. But we don't see that today. So I think that's probably the biggest difference that with manpower Manpower has really shifted and the end user puts a, a lot smaller focus and emphasis on having people on site to actually do that. When we do get it, more often than not, it's somebody that already has a full-time job of other tasks and now this is added on top of it. And now we're at inconvenience when we ask them to, to do something. And that's not because they think poorly of us. It's just because of, of how all the other things that they're really being held responsible for. And one of the unfortunate things about water treatment is sometimes problems happen very quickly, but normally it takes a while for a water treatment problem to really create a problem. So if somebody doesn't test something today, if somebody doesn't do their job today, they're not necessarily going to see it today or tomorrow. But as you know, as the Scaling Up Nation knows, eventually it will show 
and we won't have good efficiency or, or maybe it even shuts the plant down. But uh, I would say that that is definitely the biggest difference. I'll also say the biggest difference is control equipment. Now, in the early 90s, when I started, we were using microprocessor controllers. Now, before that, there were just simple analog controllers that were reading conductivity, and then they normally activated a pump when they reached a certain conductivity, and, and that, was, that was all we had. Uh, I say we, that's all my dad had. I inherited a couple of those things in the 90s, but I quickly tried to change those over to microprocessor controllers. And Connor, I remember in 1999, my job was going around to all my accounts and putting new chips on the motherboards that were in the controllers because they were not Y2K compliant. So that, that was like a, a month and a half job. I was just changing all these switches out. Can you imagine? We didn't have the forethought to think past two digits. So when, when I talk about the future, I think that's the future. What can we dream about? What can we think about? We've gotten past thinking in two digits. Now we at least think four digits so we can, we can have our equipment work into the future. But our equipment is getting smarter. Our equipment is not only recording data, our equipment is able to make decisions, program decisions based on that data. So we don't necessarily have to be there if something were to happen. Maybe the ORP goes low, so it's going to initiate a pump. Well, maybe there's some AI that's built in there and there are a couple of decisions, maybe how fast that pump goes. So there's just so much that we can do today that we couldn't do then with intelligence. And, and I don't think we've even scratched the surface on artificial intelligence when it comes to water treatment. So if I were to get into the DeLorean and look into 2030, I would see that most likely you and I are doing a lot less service that there's going to be equipment on the ground at the location that's making decisions. Now, decisions that we've programmed in that is able to respond. So if there's an issue, instead of the customer calling you and saying, you come down here tomorrow, or you telling the customer you need to do this, I truly believe that the equipment will be able to make those decisions and probably alert you that there's a potential problem on the horizon. And, you know, this hasn't happened yet, but because this is the data that I'm getting, you better come here and service because there's going to be an issue. And we talked about that on episode 183. We talked all about AI. And when we look at all the infrastructure in the world and how the AI works and is making decisions, it's allowing people to do more of what they're good at and not all the little tasks. We're giving all the little tasks to the machines. We're allowing the machines to do that so we can make better decisions and do better things with our time. That makes perfect sense. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve. Even in the six years that I've been in the industry, I've seen a shift um, towards more automation, more remote monitoring, all of those types of things. And obviously, like you said, that's just, just scratched the surface. Do you think there will be a shift in prevalence of cooling towers, of boilers, or anything associated with chemical treatment discharge i mean how do you how do you foresee 
either environmental regulations, shifting opinions about the use of chemistry impacting the water treatment world. So if we were to get back into DeLorean and go to 2023, I think that if we were to look at water bills then compared to now, they would not translate. They would be so out of whack. Water is so cheap right now. I think it's an afterthought. We only have so much water. And because we live in such a great technologically advanced society right now, you know, we need water to, to do all these things. And we're using water in ways that we've never used it before, but there's only so much. And because of that, we have to make sure we're utilizing it properly. And I think the only way, and nobody's going to like this, but I think the only way that people are going to start respecting it more is there's going to be a more charge for it. It's, it's going to be a higher cost. Now, I don't think that's because people are going to try to change people's mind. I think because we're using so much water, I think there's going to be less readily available water for us to use. So without a doubt, I think the 2030 water treater, their job is to make sure that they're as efficient as possible in their water usage. I think that's going to be their primary job. I also think with all the AI, with all the monitoring equipment that we're going to have then, the problems that we talked about, they're going to be known almost instantly. That something didn't happen, and because we're measuring everything, we're now measuring everything for efficiency, we're going to see the impact of that. And now, because most likely water is going to be so expensive, we're probably going to get a report on how much extra water we now had to spend because of that. Now it's not a surprise when we get that water bill. So I think we're going to see a lot around all the things that we should be doing now, but we're going to have more equipment and people watching it closely. So water conservation, energy conservation. Are we using the best chemistry for that area? Now, I know we have limitations on things that we can put in municipality water now, but I think that's going to get tightened up. And I think we're going to make sure that we use the optimal chemistry so things are getting used up in the system and they're not going to uh, the water treatment plant where they have to deal with it. And I think we do, a, we do a really good job of that already as water treaters, but with everything that's coming as far as monitoring, I think that's going to help us make sure that if we're putting a biocide in, that it's pretty much 100% spent by the time it reaches the drain. If we're putting a corrosion inhibitor in, it's all used up in the system before it goes out the drain. I think those are some of the things that we're going to see. Yeah, and I guess for me, one of the takeaways I get from that vision when I start to reflect on that is I think it's going to force the customers to listen to us, to be more responsive to actually value what the water treatment world, what water treatment professionals are doing. So I don't hear this as, oh my gosh, there's change on the horizon. We need to be terrified. I hear it as our role as experts in this field is only going to become more important. Our value is going to increase. So I view it as from just purely the perspective of a water treatment professional as exciting and that the future is quote unquote bright because of all these issues surrounding water. And there's going to be a true cost. There's a true cost associated with it now, but it's going to be, let's call it magnified in the future to where I think it'll be easier for us to maybe get some of the things done that we would recommend now, but just get put on the back burner. 
I think that's an excellent point. And I think it's also showing the Scaling Up Nation that our careers, our industry is here to stay. And, and change isn't something we need to be scared of. Matter of fact, when I was thinking about those things, I was excited about that because exactly as you said, we're going to be looked at an even more valued professional at every customer that we talk with because, as you said, they know the impact of what's going to happen if they don't do what we're advising them to do. I love that. That was a great comment. Cool. Well, one of the things as I was preparing for this, I I was curious about, I'm not sure I've ever heard this from you is, I know it's true because I have probably five or six that I could think of off the top of my head. What's the most embarrassing moment that you've had in the water treatment world, let's call it? When I first started out, and again, this isn't running the task I used to do for my dad when I was a, a small guy. This is when I actually started getting a paycheck. My dad took me to one of his accounts, and it was a turkey rendering plant. And I I was in Richmond, Virginia, so this was out in the mountains of Virginia. Beautiful out there. But as you started getting close to the plant, you knew you were getting close to the plant. You could definitely smell the plant. And this now became my account. My dad turned it over to me. And I had a really good relationship with all the people that were there. Uh, they took their water seriously because they knew that if, if they didn't take their water seriously, nothing else would work in that plant. It stunk. It, I mean, and, and, and I cannot say over the podcast to qualify how bad this smell was. And the cooling tower was right by the rendering pit. I mean, it was, it was just horrible. And not to mention the the biological issues that we had because they didn't set things up properly in their plant. Well, in addition to having that account, I was also supposed to find new accounts. And right by there, there were a bunch of buildings that one property manager had. And I don't remember her name, uh, a very, very nice lady. Uh, very, very proper, always well-dressed, very, very well-groomed. Everything was always in place in her office. I mean, that, that's just how she was. And it was really difficult to get an appointment with her. But I knew I could sell one building by talking to that building engineer, or if I won her over, I could get all 12 of those buildings in that complex. Well, I finally got an appointment with her and trying to be efficient, I serviced the turkey rendering plan. And then I went to go visit her. And she told me that I was uh, offensive smelling, I believe was the the term that she used. (laughs) So that was um, being so excited to win that appointment and then her telling me that I stunk. uh, That was pretty bad. So what I've learned since then is uh, I carried a change of clothes with me. And uh, if I were to see somebody after going to that turkey rendering plant, there was a Stucky's uh, truck stop. I would actually take a shower there at the truck stop. I actually tried taking it at the plant, but the stink would actually penetrate the new clothes on the way out from the shower into the car. So I had to get away from the plant. So by far, that was my most embarrassing story. Oh, man. So let me ask you this. Did you get the account? I did get the account. Uh, I think I spun it some way that I was so excited because I was, I was so excited for this appointment. I had just, and she knew the plant. I mean, she could smell it when the wind blew. She knew exactly where I was. I did get the business, uh, but I made sure every time I met with her that I stopped at that Stuckey's and I changed my clothes. Uh, I love that. I think 
one of the things that is a, an important takeaway from that is some of the most embarrassing, what we feel like are the most embarrassing moments ultimately lead to good relationships. You get the business, you keep the business. It, it, it's a it's a different take on what otherwise would have just been a normal meeting, right? So I think that that's, that's a great takeaway from that story. The other thing that I've learned, at least when going to rendering plants, is if you wear your leather work boots in there, those leather work boots are going to hold on to that smell for for weeks. So just beware. Your car smells like that. It, it's horrible. I complained about that to my father. And I said, Dad, this place stinks. And he goes, son, that's the smell of money. <laughs> what, my wife, uh, I park in the driveway and my dog will run out and start licking the mud flaps on my car after I drove <laughs> on site. And she's... <laughs> That is disgusting. Get get the dog away from there. So yeah, I uh, have to be careful not to let the dog, you know, go to town on the mud flaps from the the rendering sludge of the parking lot. We could have a whole podcast about the blunders of Connor Parrish, but one story that I thought would be would be funny to share. Right when I started off, somehow I don't remember the exact details around it, but I had a meeting at a power plant in Wyoming that I'd never been to before. And so I, I show up, I go through security and they tell me, okay, go through this hallway. There'll be a turnstile and the chemist is going to meet you at the turnstile. So I walk through, I, you know, get down, I'm waiting at the turnstile and it's been 10, 15 minutes and still no chemist. Now, not really having a lot of experience in these types of plants, I didn't put together the fact that the chemist's office is probably in some dark hallway in the center of this plant and navigating all the way through and out to the turnstile probably is a 15, 20 minute task, depending on where they're at and what they were doing at the time. Well, all I thought was, you know what, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I'm at the wrong spot. And I look and there's a phone right next to the turnstile. So for me, I was like, oh, I'll just pick up this phone. I'll talk to security and no problem. So I pick up the phone hello, hello, I say into the phone. What I hear is the entire plant intercom system, my voice saying, hello, hello. At that <laughs> point, I'm totally panicking. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just announced myself to the entire plant. So I put the phone down and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh no, how am I going to explain this? And then someone else comes over the intercom. Whoever just picked up the phone, put down the phone. And uh, that was the start to, uh, to the meeting. Needless to say, I was very rattled going in meeting with this chemist. <laughs> so let me ask, did you get the business? On that one, unfortunately, no. But I'll go ahead and say it's a power plant. So I'll use the power plant as an excuse. And I was very green. I don't remember what the meeting was about anyways. But, but no, it was a rural Wyoming water plant, power plant, excuse me. And in that instance, the embarrassing moment did not uh, result in the same way that yours did. Okay, so a couple quick questions here. I know um, the Scaling Up Nation has been pretty patient as we've maybe had a fairly long episode, but I'm curious, and this is something that I know you've liked to ask in the past, what historical figure would you have a beer with if you could? Somebody that's helped me more than uh, I think they could ever know, because I've never met them, is uh, Stephen Covey. I was given the seven habits of highly effective people when I was 19 
I was working for Mass Mutual at the time. That was my in-between job, in-between water treatment. And uh, because of that, I realized that water treatment was really where I needed to be. But somebody gave me that book, and we went through the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that was really uh, the foundation of everything I just mentioned in productivity. So how do I come up with my goals, my roles, my mission, all of that stuff? That's helped me become a better person. And because I'm constantly trying to make myself better, it allows me to help other people do that for themselves. And uh, he passed away. Uh, I want to say maybe about five years or so ago, but I would love to, one, he, I don't think he would share a beer with me. He was Mormon. I don't, I don't know if he drank or not, but uh, whatever beverage of his choice, I would love to sit down, let him know what his work meant to me. And I also would like to know what he left out of the book. What were the things that the publishers just said it was too long and uh, we can't put that in there? I did have the opportunity, the closest I'll ever come was I met his son, who's now head of Franklin Covey. So his book is The Speed of Trust, and it's basically how to use the seven habits in relationships. It's a great read. It's almost a how-to when you have a misalignment of expectations, what to do to realign those expectations. And it gives you 13 behaviors that you can identify and then choose to, to work on. Uh, great book, but I had met him, and it was actually at a seminar for his book, and we were broken out in these workout sessions, and my round of four people was a little bit light because I think everybody else had like six or eight people. So he walked off stage, and he sat with us to be in our group, and we started talking, and we ended up eating lunch together, and I asked him, and I know you've read the book, and I know there are a lot of people out there in the Scaling Up Nation that have read it, but there's a story in there about expectations, and he's talking about his little son and how he was going to get, and I'm talking about the father, Stephen Covey, how he was going to get his little son, the gentleman that was sitting at the table with me, to keep the yard, what he said, green and clean. He said, the end result is what we're going for. However you get there, it's up to you. And he goes into the seven habits of highly effective people and how to have this conversation with people. And then the result is the yard looked as horrible as it could have ever looked because they didn't really set it up right. And he breaks that down. Anyway, so I asked him, what is his take? What is his story on the failure of green and clean? And he looks right at me and he goes, I was seven. <laughs> That's awesome. That's such a great book, and there's so many nuggets and lessons and great stories in there. So to hear the perspective of his son is is awesome. So when I was preparing for this interview, one of the things that I always like to ask people is for book recommendations. I'm a huge reader, but I realized that, one, I've talked to you a lot about books and, and whatnot, but it seems like it's always business or productivity-related books. I think a lot of the things that we've referenced back through this podcast, even today, are tying back towards either productivity books, business-related books. I'm curious, I guess, one, does Trace read non-productivity, non-business books? And if so, what are some of your favorite books, either non-fiction or fiction books, that I guess would be viewed more as that filling of the gas tank type of a book as opposed to work? 
So I will admit, I gravitate to the business and productivity books. Uh, it, it, it gives, it teaches me something, and then I can do something after I read it, and I can measure the results. I, I really enjoy that. It, it's really difficult for me to read something that's not that. I have to force myself to do that. But like you, I also have a coach, and he's Tim Fulton. He's been on the show a couple of times. He will say, Trace, this month, you're not going to read any business books. I want you to read some pleasure books. And it, that's what it, really what it takes for me to read something that's, that's not a business book. My favorite nonfiction book, hands down, is The Hunt for Red October. I have read that book dozens of times. I've got imagery that um, I can, I, I, just, I just know where they are, not from the movie, but just how I've envisioned all the things that they talk about in the book. I can reread it and it's like I'm watching a visual movie. So that's a really easy read for me and I've always enjoyed it. I bet I've, I've read that, I don't think I've read it a dozen times, but it's probably not far away from that. Another thing that I've read is I've read all of the, uh, Game of Thrones books. I really enjoyed that series on HBO. And uh, there was a departure, I think, around the third season from the show and the books. And if you have not read those books, they are by far superior to the show. And if you didn't like how the show ended, you probably like better how the books set that up. Uh, and other than that, I just don't read a lot of non-business books. There you have it, folks. You got to read all the business books and productivity books to be like Trace. I don't think I don't think anybody wants to wants to pull on that thread. <laughs> I uh, no, I, I can appreciate that. It, it's sometimes difficult to to break out of that mindset of yeah, but if I'm going to spend you know however many hours reading, it'd be great to continue to improve or to continue continue to learn. I've gotten better about reading fiction and nonfiction, but I, I can totally relate to that. Trace, I know you're a huge scuba diver. I've heard many, you know, either stories about teaching, training, all of that. I'm curious, I just recently read a book about cave diving, which kind of got me thinking about this. Uh, what's your craziest scuba story? Well, I, I've read that same book and I don't have anything that crazy. And, and if I can shift gears a second, let's go back to, to Michael Phelps. I'm a technical scuba diver. I can train other technical scuba divers. So that's kind of in that book that you were talking about, uh, where they're really breaking the limits of regular recreational scuba diving. I didn't start there. So I started out with a friend of mine when we were down at the beach saying, hey, I'm going scuba. The other alternative is my wife was going shopping, so do scuba for the first time or go shopping. So I said, hey, let's go shopping. And matter of fact, and I was thinking the entire time how terrified I was that there was no air down there. So I didn't have a great experience my very first time as a scuba diver because I didn't get training. And I then, it was just a discovery class. They kind of just threw you in the water and hoped everything went well. Well, later I decided I wanted to get training and there was somebody that guided me through what I needed to know in the basics of scuba diving. And then I got certified. And then after getting certified, I decided I wanted to learn some more. And I started learning more and I started getting more experience. And today my deepest depth is 258 feet on a rebreather. My longest dive was four hours and 12 minutes on a rebreather. And I'm a rebreather instructor. So I didn't just start out that way. So that's my Michael Phelps story as far as scuba diving. 
the scariest story that I have is I was on my rebreather. And for those of you that don't know, uh, that's called closed circuit. So open circuit is what you're used to. That's when you exhale on a, on a scuba regulator and you see the bubbles come out. On the rebreather, no bubbles. Conceivably, the air you come off of the boat with is the air that you're recirculating in this loop. The great thing about this is I have a lot less air capacity that I'm carrying down in those cylinders, but it lasts a long time. You heard me say I got a four hour and 10 minute dive. Folks, I wasn't out of air. I just got tired. I wanted to come up. So you can, you can stay a lot longer and there's no bubbles. Well, you go down there to see all the creatures. Well, the bubbles scare the creatures. So now they're just looking at you and you see so many more things underwater when you don't have that exhaust of air bubbles coming out. Well, I was down in the Florida Keys and for those of you that are divers and have not dove the Florida Keys, it's one of the best diving spots in the world. Not that I've seen them all, but from what I've seen in the United States, I mean, it's just incredible. So we were diving the bib. There's two boats that are really close to each other that are wrecks, the bib and the Duane. They're Coast Guard cutters. They're about 100 feet. And I was on the rebreather and there was a lot of current. There was a mild amount of current when we started the dive, but it really picked up during the dive. So much so, it took everything that I had to get from the wheelhouse back to the upline where the boat was. So normally you swim against the current and you use the current to take you back where you're going. Well, the current had shifted and it really shifted. So I was using everything that I had to get back to this line. Well, if you imagine on a rebreather, it, it takes time for all this stuff to work. And I was breathing pretty hard. I had over-breathed the rebreather. And what that is, you get a buildup of carbon dioxide in your system. I've been through enough training. I recognize that. And I remember thinking, because I still had a really long way to swim. It wasn't long, but because of the current, it seemed long to get to that upline. And if I didn't make it, I was just going to get blown out somewhere and hopefully a boat would pick me up or something. But I remember thinking as I was swimming, you know, is this it? Is, is this, is this going to be, you know, the last thing that I do? And then right then my training kicked in. I'm like, okay, I can kick more efficiently. I can purposely breathe this rebreather and, and not just give up to how my body wants to breathe. I can, I can breathe it more properly. And I made it to that line, obviously, because I have this podcast and we're talking today. But that was, that was the moment where you know, I had to make a decision and I had to rely on my training. So that was a, a really real moment for me in scuba diving. Another funny story in scuba diving is I go to Bonaire, which is in the Southern Caribbean. I think it's the lowest island in the Caribbean. And they're, they're lionfish there. And, and Connor, you, you've probably heard of lionfish. They're an invasive species. Um, there are rumors or myths that they came over uh, because somebody flushed something in a fish tank. I think most likely uh, they got sucked up in a ballast of a ship and then were probably released here. Anyway, they are here and they have no natural predator. They are destroying the reefs. I was working with somebody down in Bonaire and they were showing me how one lionfish ate 32 shrimp. So, I mean, they, they, are, just, they are just cleaning out the, the reef. They support the cleaning of the fish and all these other things that the reef can't survive with. 
Anyway, so when we go down there, we normally lionfish hunt. It is a protected sanctuary, so you not only have to have the certification to do lionfish hunting, you have to have a guide go with you to do lionfish hunting. Well, we were on the rebreathers, and we were down about 150 feet, 200 feet, where none of the guides were certified to go that deep. So my funniest story is where we're taking this class and they're telling us that we have to have this guide. And they say, no, you cannot go if you don't have a guide. And we say, okay, well, who's going to go with us at this depth? And because nobody was able to, to go at that depth, they finally said, okay, fine, you can do it. And they stamped off on our certification. Huh. So what does lionfish hunting entail? How do you do that? And First, let me just acknowledge how scared I was just listening to the previous story. So we're glad you're here with us, Trace, but man, I'm not envious of that scenario. Well, and I hope that's not the picture that I paint for the sport of scuba diving, because you asked me what my craziest or scariest story was, and that was it. Now, I've got thousands of other dives that I've seen sharks, I've seen wildlife, I've seen, you know, you name it, and I've had great experiences. So if you would have asked that, we would have had a a lot better conversation. So I don't want you to think that's what scuba diving is. That's just the the worst I've ever had in scuba diving and the most I can compare to the the book that you had. Of course. Well, we all like the sensationalist story. So that's what we went with here. (laughs) But you're asking about how you hunt lionfish. So basically you have a spear and on the end of it is it's called a stinger and it's got uh, three to five points on it. And what you do is you pull it back. There's like a a, a rubber band. It's a little bit thicker than a rubber band, but you pull that back. You get some tension. You aim at the fish. You let it go. It goes through the fish and it's got barbs on it. So it keeps the fish from swimming away. Now you can't touch the lionfish. So what you do is you put that into a, a special bag that allows you to put fish in, but the fish cannot get out. Now, doing this over and over again, that's what they teach you. I learned that that is not the best way because it's got grommets in it that allow the water to flow through the bag as you're swimming so it doesn't slow you down. Well, the fish spines can stick through that as well, and I've gotten stung that way. So what I now do is I semi-clean the fish. I cut the spines off before they go in the bag. And I've also learned that you never shoot the fish in the meat section. You shoot it through the head, and then that way the meat isn't blemished. And the whole reason that you would hunt lionfish is is it is destroying the reef. They are an invasive species, and they have no natural predator. So teaching the other fish that they can eat them like grouper. Grouper don't know what they are, so they don't eat them. But if you feed them to grouper, they now learn, oh, that's food, and now they're going to start hunting lionfish. So that's one way we can do it underwater. We then, we take that meat to the locals, and we give them this meat. I will all be filleted and ready to go, and they eat it, and they realize, oh, I can eat lionfish. And you start seeing cookbooks with lionfish recipes. And that's one of the marks that you know that a town understands that this is a food source. Wow, that's, it sounds like fun, to be honest. And you're making an impact. It really is. It, it, gives you, it gives you a mission and you know you're doing something good. Sure. Cool. All right. Well, we got one last question here that I wanted that I was just really curious about is what other podcasts do you enjoy listening to? 
first off, since I've been listening to podcasts, I absolutely love podcasts. I'm one of those people that think uh, you should share what you know so you can enhance other people with that. And that's what people that host podcasts do. Connor, you turned me on to one of my favorite podcasts, which is Tim Ferriss. Uh, he was one of the first ones that I started listening to. His podcasts are very long, but they're extremely informative. And he just has a way of s explaining things that you just get it. As soon as he says it, you just get it. His books are like that. His podcasts are like that. So thank you for that recommendation. He's definitely on my podcast list. Another one I listen to is Smart Passive Income. That guy's name is Pat Flynn. I've actually had an opportunity to meet him through Charlie Cicchetti a couple of times, and he is by far the most genuine person I have ever met. His mission is to share everything that he knows to help other people. And if you haven't heard of him, I, I, would, I would ask that you check out Smart Passive Income. What his job was is he lost his job, and he wanted to figure out, okay, how do I create a new job where I wasn't dependent on somebody else? And he came up with all these different ways to have smart passive income. And he posts on his website monthly what his income statement is. So you can actually see what he's doing. And he teaches you through his website and through his podcast how you can do that as well. But he also talks about productivity. Uh, he talks about a lot of other things, just like we do on our, our show. We're not just water treatment. One of my favorite voices of all time is Mike Rowe. I think he's got the most incredible voice, and he does a podcast called The Way I Heard It. They're really quick. They're seven minutes long, and he'll do, uh, some are a little bit longer, but he'll take something and he'll start talking about it, and he'll twist it so you think you know what he's talking about, but it's not until the end where he does the reveal where you realize exactly what the story is. He is an incredible story writer. He puts a spin on things we think we already know. And I've got to tell you, I've, I've been driving down the road. I've laughed at those. I've cried at those. That is one of my, my favorites. And then a, another one that somebody in our mastermind shared with us was actually Tom Hardy. He told me about one called Manager Tools, and it's all about productivity tools. It's all about how do we get better expectations with people? How do we have tools uh, to work better with people? And each episode is a different tool. Awesome. Thanks for that. I know if the listeners here are anything like me, one, they've got way too much windshield time, and two, it's too much windshield time for scaling up to consume all of that time. So I think you know, the recommendation of the Tim Ferriss show, Smart Passive Income, the way I heard it with Mike Rowe and Manager Tools. Maybe that gives everyone a few more podcasts to check out to hopefully kill some of that windshield time and make it a little bit more productive. So Trace, again, thank you so much for, for doing this. I'm, I'm so appreciative of everything you do. And I uh, want to thank the Scaling Up Nation for letting me flip the tables here and take your job here today as interviewer. And uh, thank you so much. Well, it was my pleasure. And I hope the Scaling Up Nation enjoys it as much as I have. 
Well, Connor, I sincerely want to thank you for doing that. I know it's uh, got to be interesting interviewing the host of the podcast on that podcast, but you did a great job. And I, I think you answered a lot of questions that people had in the Scaling Up Nation. And it was great to be able to let the Scaling Up Nation know the answers of the questions that everybody had. So, Folks, you asked for it, we did it, and that is how we do this show. A lot of times I will pick a topic because you emailed it to me, you put it on our show notes page, you got that to me, and however you got it to me. But with that, I then developed an entire show around that. And I love doing that because when you tell me what you want us to cover, I know we're carrying the right information on scaling up H2O. If you're wondering how to do that, you can go to scalinguph2o.com. You can go to our show ideas page and you can let us know anything you would like to on that form, who you want us to interview, what questions you personally have for us or any show ideas. Now, maybe you have a question that you want to ask me and you want me to play your voice on the air. If that's the case, as soon as you go to our homepage, you will see a pop-up on the right-hand side that says record voicemail and you can record your voice on whatever device you are on. People are always asking me what the nation can do to help the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And I love it that you all are asking that question. I always answer that with the number one thing is to continue to listen to Scaling Up H2O. But it's also followed quickly by tell someone else about the podcast. Make sure that they subscribe so they get that brand new episode each and every week. But there's also some other things that you can do. Search engines rate our popularity based on the comments. So if you can go to your favorite podcast player and leave some comments about the show, that helps us rank higher. That helps water treaters find our show even easier. And folks, when the Scaling Up Nation grows, the content that we're able to give grows within the show as well. So we're all helping each other. I appreciate the question and I appreciate all you do to continue to make Scaling Up H2O the best podcast for the industrial water treatment industry. Folks, I'm back with you next week with a brand new episode. Until then, have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, I recently asked Rising Tide Mastermind member Connor Parrish, what are some of the things that he is bringing back to his company as being a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind? Here's what he said. It's allowed me to kind of think with a better structure in terms of what do our employees need? What do the members of our team need to be successful? And then really trying to empower them to, to have some of that. And so, for example, we've kind of taken some of the, uh, some of the things that I've learned and directly are starting to apply within our organization. And I think if you were to ask those on our team, they would say that there's been a big change or a big shift in terms of my interactions and how I'm approaching things with them since the start of the mastermind. 
Nation, I hope you can see through Connor's comments why I say a rising tide lifts all boats. The things that you learn, the things that your people learn within the Rising Tide Mastermind allows the entire team to grow. We are always trying to find something new that will help all the members be better at what they do. If you want to find out more about the Rising Tide Mastermind, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind, where you can read all about the mastermind and apply to schedule a call with me. Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.